Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. This is the book. Hopefully this should not be a surprise to you. Uh, it's called Drink, the New Science of Alcohol and Your Health by Professor David Nutt, who was a kind of lead expert for drugs and alcohol back in the 2000s. Um, he was, we were working on trying to get him onto the podcast, but this, see, coronavirus has changed things. Um, and I think he's having to, he's on lockdown because he's a former gentleman. So um, that hasn't been possible. Maybe in the future we'll be able to kind of get him back on board, but uh, it's just me for this evening. And I wanted to talk about alcohol because it's a key factor in mental health. Uh, I think it's one of the things that people find quite difficult to talk about. And I think it's uh, something that is problems with alcohol or problem drinking is actually something that's really normalized in our society, which makes it difficult to address because if an issue arises, if you say to someone, you know, do you have a problem drinking, then either they get defensive or it's very, very, very easy to dismiss it as just part of the culture. So I spent some time um, working in the city. I wasn't a trailer when I was doing my training in psychology, but I was in the city. So grew very familiar with um, finance and like media marketing and you know, banks and law firms and the kind of the culture there being kind of work hard, play hard, but also real the really strong drinking culture. Also, of course, there was an enormous amount of stress and people would self-medicate with drugs and alcohol. At the time, at least, there was still a culture of client entertainment and it was, you know, you would secure deals over very boozy brunches, dinners, golf weekends, this sort of thing. And I think in those sorts of situations, it's very, very easy to kind of get into a habit of drinking, relying on drinking and having drinking minimized. What I did like about this book is that David actually does take a very pragmatic approach. So his whole idea, and actually what's really funny is that he part owns a wine bar. So <laughs> I think he has um, quite vested interests, but he has to declare his conflicts, right? Um, so he calls alcohol the most dangerous drug in the UK. Um, 
but also says, look, there are some positives. People obviously drink it for a reason. Um, they enjoy elements of it. And therefore, perhaps it's not going to work to say people shouldn't drink at all. That's unlikely. It's unrealistic. People resist that. We've tried that before. But that people should have informed consent about how much they drink. They should understand the implications of how much they drink, you know, the potential risks on their physical health or their mental health. And then they should be able to make a decision for themselves. And I quite like that approach. I'm a big fan of, you know, letting people know the deal so that they can make a decision for themselves or kind of free country libertarian, I guess, in that sense. So as I said, I feel like drinking, you know, we have this what I call casually alcoholic society in as far as it's considered normal to drink every day, every night. And uh, what really struck me was um, when people started panic buying and I didn't go into the supermarkets for a little while because um, I hope my cupboards were always kind of full so I didn't need to immediately. But when I did, I was really surprised and maybe I'm just naive, but I was really surprised to see that along with the toilet roll and the pasta, all of the beer shelves were completely empty. And so when we're thinking about essentials, it really struck me then, you know, that people were buying soap, people were buying blue roll, but also people were buying beer and that it was considered necessary to have, you know, a plentiful supply of alcohol at home. And I think that's really, really interesting because what it tells us is that alcohol isn't just a social drink. It's not we're meeting up at the pub for a few drinks or, you know, after work or lunchtime. It's this is something we're doing in our own homes, maybe by ourselves or just with our partners. And then it's just become a normal thing. And that's the extraordinary thing about a drug in, in that sense is that it's so very normalized. I guess how in the way that smoking uh, was for a very long time. The question, it's so normalized to drink a bottle of wine with your friends. Wine tastes nice. I self-medicated for a while, but now I can enjoy a couple of glasses a week. Okay. Um, yeah, and I think it's that. And I think that probably, well, it depends. Like I say, it probably starts for most people around end of school, college, maybe beginning of university, where particularly universities where there's a massive drinking culture where the you know the pub crawls and beer crawls and societies that feature drinking as part of the initiation ceremonies or part of a way of bonding i think i think you make a good point there nwxv it's a way to unwind after a stressful day and i'll be thinking about that a little bit later on because again this is what does it say about the way that we're living or about our culture, about the way that we manage our emotional worlds, that the way to unwind is through taking a drug? And perhaps we don't think about it as a drug, but the reality is that it's a drug that either our lives have gotten to such a non-manageable point or such a point of intensity that we need almost a, a chemical crutch to manage our lives or and i guess it could be both that we don't have enough emotional or relational coping skills for the difficulties or the stresses of our days that we have to fall back on this thing so is it something about 
a greater level of isolation, a greater level of separation. That means that people are turning more to substances and activities, workaholism, exercise addiction, those sorts of things that um, in order to manage and in order to cope. Sorry, I'm going to grab a couple of your questions. Most of the parents I know, including me, uh, wanted to have some in the cupboards to cope with having kids at home for a long period of time. I think that's a really interesting point. Um, and again, that's something about how we manage stress. Yeah, that it's it's a way and it's it's understood to be a way that we manage stress. And I guess, you know, obviously I'm going to have a bias. <laughs> I'm a psychologist. I would like us to be working through our stresses. I appreciate that that's not possible all the time. But I think it says something about the number of people who are relying on this as a mechanism to manage stress. And, you know, maybe that's something we need to be much more aware of. Like, if we're thinking about the number of people with um, problem drinking, is that a kind of warning signal to the government, to our healthcare system, that people are really struggling, that they're struggling much more than than we realise? Um, why are so many well-off middle-class mom friends normalising multiple units every night? Um, yeah, no, I think that's absolutely true, that I think there's a way in which a bottle a night seems like a reasonable amount to be drinking. All right, so I'm going to uh, talk about a couple of points. So... So yeah, so the drinking is normalized and to the point that, which always really struck me, is that drinking is so normalized that people who don't drink end up in the position of having to almost justify themselves. You know, they're having either to explain why they don't drink or they come up with excuses. And in fact, in the book, because, you know, David acknowledges the stigma around not drinking, he offers like a, a list of excuses that people can use if they're trying to reduce their drinking or if they're not drinking. Um, and that's extraordinary, isn't it? Because we wouldn't, we don't say that to smokers. If someone says, oh no, I'm not smoking, we don't go, oh, go on. <laughs> like, oh, are you sure? Or oh, just have a little one, just have a cheeky one. Or if someone was, you know, coming off an addiction to drugs, we would, you know, no one in their right mind would think, oh, go on, just just have a little, you know, just have a drop. It would never happen. Yet there's a way in which uh, with alcohol it's the other way around. The normal, accepted, tolerable way of being is to drink. And there's something stigmatizing about not drinking. It'd be interesting to hear your thoughts on why that is. Um, I have some of my own, but it'd be interesting to hear what you guys have to say. Going back to some of your questions, Oh, actually, I've just realised I'm not recording this. Let me just quickly turn on the recorder um, so at least you can get some of this later on. Um, sorry, so back to your questions. I was more accepted as a heavy drinking mum than a sober mum. That's extraordinary. Huge stigma attached to coming clean about having a problem with it. Right? Isn't that extraordinary that there's something that we find more tolerable around someone who's drinking heavily and, you know, potentially harming themselves, harming their, their children or, you know, their relationships with their children that people push against rather than, you know, someone who is sober um, or, you know, trying to come off drinking, uh, that that's the part that gets stigmatised. 
Um, that's a good point. Addiction to various things to be an issue for myself personally. I used to use alcohol to ease social anxiety. So that's one of the big themes that comes out of the book. Um, in fact, I think it was one of my points. Uh, maybe I will get to it in a moment. But a high proportion of heavy drinkers have a diagnosable social anxiety disorder. And so there's that kind of vicious circle of feeling socially anxious, drinking because it does have that effect, that physiological and chemical effect of relaxing you, but then becoming dependent on the alcohol to have the confidence uh, to go into that social situation. So you end up in this vicious circle where it can, it makes you sociable, or it makes, makes it easier for you to be sociable yet then you perhaps develop a physical dependency to it and and then it's a kind of a bit of a trap um in europe drinking wine tends to be during meals so sociable time and it did shock me when arriving to the uk how drink seems dissociated from food so it has a stronger effect and not always associated with taste i think that's absolutely true um often uh, in the UK, it's actually about how much of a disgusting mix of drinks you can consume and survive. It's very much about a kind of machismo. And I think sometimes that goes for women as well. It's not just kind of a, a, the men's approach. I certainly remember that sense um, as a teenager about, you know, going toe to toe with the boys and being able, you know, that there was something we, we had the kind of ladette culture in the UK around that time. Um, and that there was something cool about it, you know. There, so I think that's I think that's absolutely true. So yes. So a, another one of the other really striking uh, statistics from the book is that Brits get drunk an average of fifty one point one times a year, right? So um, so basically, Brits are getting drunk on average every weekend. But remember that that's an average. Um, so there are going to be a bunch of um, non-drinkers and low drinkers that um, are kind of then compensated for by people who are getting drunk more than once a week. So, but already that's, I mean, I don't know how you guys feel about that. To me, that's a lot. Um, yes, I think you're you're absolutely right that I think um, the push to get to some, so... Um, Recovery Nutrition says that the problem around all the, the resistance that non-drinkers get is around fear. That if I say, oh, I'm not drinking, even if I don't say anything else, um, what it does is to force people to think, oh, why, why have you stopped drinking? Um, oh, does that mean that I should stop drinking? Do you drink more or less than me? Does that mean that the level that I drink is a problem? And you know, we want to avoid these difficult questions for ourselves. And so rather than turn inwards and consider what it might mean about our own relationship with alcohol, we kind of push it back on the other person and say, oh, don't be silly. You just have a drink. If you're drinking, then I can drink and we can all forget about this horrible mess about um, whether I've got a problem with alcohol kind of thing. Gosh, okay. So this one here, my father didn't drink for 10 years but broke it at a wedding as the groom would have been offended had he not had a glass of champagne. I think that's, that's a real shame, isn't it? Because there's something in there about not respecting another person's bodily autonomy. Um, you know, that someone has the right to say 
whether or not they're going to drink. You know, in the same way that I'm, I'm going to presume that if this person father, this person's father had said, oh, I'm a vegetarian, that the groom would have said, please, we're all eating lamb chops. You have to eat a lamb chop. Right. So th- there's a way that we separate drinking off as a separate thing um, that is good, that is to be encouraged, that is social and that everything else, anything that differs from that or defers from that is uh, wrong. That's a, that makes me quite sad, actually. Um, all right. So someone says, I don't drink. And in my experience, I may get some curious glances as to why I don't drink. The only ones that pressurise me into drinking are the ones that have a problem with their own drinking. Yes, yes, absolutely. I think that's would probably be my guess. Um, I'm at uni, to so someone else. I'm at uni and don't drink. The stigma is everywhere, especially in the UK. Drinking culture is parasitically attached to the uni lifestyle and I think that's true and I think in the book he mentions a particular group who um, is like a social members club who specialise in binge drinking weekends and really trying to I guess help people understand that they don't need that helping students to understand the dangers of that and again helping people drink to drink within healthy well he says that the, the, the World Health Organization says that there is no safe level of drinking, um, particularly in terms of alcohol being a carcinogen, but where I guess there's a, a closer balance between the costs and the benefits. Um, I think 12 of those 51 days are over the festive period. Yes, probably. Um, it was part of my boyfriend's persona that he was always up for a laugh and a, drunk, and a drink. Sorry, um, He found it difficult to stop and keep that persona. Um, yeah, and again, that's a really poignant one, isn't it? That 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 close link that can emerge between being the life and soul of the party, being fun. I often I've spoken to people about um, you know they want to be on form, they want to be you know fun, they don't want to be boring, they don't want to be the one in the corner being quiet, and that the social pressure to perform, um, to be entertaining, to be fun can be enough. And we can understand why it would be enough because particularly uh, for adolescents, and remember your adolescence goes up into your mid-twenties, that there is a huge biological drive for acceptance, to be part of a group, to be thought well of, um, to not be the odd one out. And so that we would think that um, teenagers, adolescents, young adults are particularly vulnerable to anything that risks putting them on the outside, being an outsider, being different, um, being the odd one out. And if we have a really powerful drinking culture during that period of time, as we do at universities, at colleges, um, then that would be one of the reasons that we kind of increase our risk of kind of falling into a drinking trap so someone says it makes me so sad that so much low self-esteem is associated with needing a drink to feel confident um i would love everyone to know that you can have fun with or without a drink don't let it define you um yes i think that's absolutely true um and thank you for that um so yes so i've spoken about the trap of social anxiety and drinking what i've really you know how much i love a bit of brain chat is 
where he starts talking about the actual physiological effects of alcohol in the brain and really alcohol affects all of our main neurotransmitters serotonin which is associated with mood dopamine which is associated with reward GABA which is calming and soothing as well as affecting the relationship I should I should have had my brain with me but um it's in the other room um that connectivity between the the PFC the front part of the brain which is responsible for decision making judgment um your uh, evaluation of risk uh, those sorts of things and the emotional parts of the brain and so that's the reason that when you drink you lose your sense of judgment you lose your sense of being able to make a valid risk assessment and that's why well that's why you do stupid stuff when you're drunk this is why you do stuff that you would never dream of doing sober it's why you do things um that make you cringe and really embarrassed to think about afterwards it's why there are so many I think it's called bal- balconing. Um, so people getting very drunk on holiday, often on holiday, like coastal holidays in Spain, and then climbing over balconies because they're unable to judge the risk, you know, that their capacity to think, this is really dangerous, my balance is shot, this, I could die, that goes out of the way. And what, what alcohol does is to reduce your capacity for fear and so you feel fearless and your judgment is shot to pieces and that's what makes one of the reasons that makes alcohol so so very dangerous one size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes nice dress uh it's a it's a t-shirt until you tried it on same goes for your health care that's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Um, and then I wanted to think about um, the other psychological effects of alcohol, because of course, you know, psychologists end up working with people with alcohol problems, whether they know it or not. And... And sometimes that's a bit of a negotiation, right? Um, particularly a if that person has grown up in a family or other social environment in which the level of drinking is considered 
normal. You know, it can feel... (laughs) If sometimes I go in and say, hmm, do you think that's a normal level of drinking? And I'm considered a bit of a prude, like who's the old lady drinking the sherry once a year in the corner? Uh, Doesn't she realise that this is normal? When really it's thinking about that person's relationship with alcohol. So if you have, or, you know, as a psychologist, a client coming in and they their stories always start with, I was hammered this weekend, or, you know, I feel awful because, you know, I'm still hanging, you know, all of that. Then it's really about thinking about that person's relationship with alcohol. And I think that's a point that needs to be gotten across that people think that to have a problem with alcohol or to be an alcoholic that you have to be you know a street drunk you know that you are disheveled and uh that you you're you can't work you're not holding down a job um that you've been kicked out by your family you know this very very stereotypical view of of an alcoholic when that's i think increasingly the rarity so what's more common is the person who comes home from work and needs a drink you know that they can't really settle unless they've had half a bottle of wine and then they're okay or a friend of mine um started going to AA because they couldn't just have one and it wasn't that they were falling down drunk all the time it was that they just in whatever social situation they were in they couldn't just have one even if they wanted to and that was enough for them to think okay I'm not in control of my relationship with alcohol I'm relying on it for something else and maybe I should try to address what that issue is rather than just kind of going along with it like this someone else was uh kind of in that environment that I described earlier on working in the city with this really go hard, hammer it, kind of client entertainment culture. So, and and where they were basically applauded for coming in drunk and conducting the meetings slightly hungover and then carrying on and doing the same thing um, the next night. And, And when it's people like that, when it's situations like that, when it's, you know, this person, for example, was earning enough for it not to leave, for their drinking not to leave them destitute, you know, they could they could afford it or the other person who you know they were just they knew they couldn't stop at one to meet them in the street they're holding down very good jobs they're very respectable they're you know doing normal things um and it's not that stereotypical view of someone who has a problem with alcohol and i think that the mischaracterization of what it means to be an alcoholic or to have a problem with alcohol means that lots of people who do have a problem with alcohol don't see it in themselves or they say oh I'm not this I'm not that person I'm not that stereotype so it can't possibly be about me that that can't be a problem that I need to think about and what that does is just prolong things it means that they have longer and longer for that relationship with alcohol to become entrenched for it to become the norm which will make it harder to kind of right the ship like turn things around as and when they do get to the point of thinking actually I think this is probably gone on a bit too long um back to your questions how would i approach the conversation with someone close to me who i think has a poor relationship with alcohol i've attempted before and it didn't go well that's 
really really tough for the kind of the reasons that I I just mentioned um and of course because people don't like to think that they're not in control of themselves you know we like to think that we have finite control of ourselves that we could stop if we wanted to um and so it's a huge admission for someone to say actually yeah maybe you're right um I would applaud you for trying I think that's the important thing I don't think there's one way that's going to work because essentially if that person isn't willing to see it there's there's you know there's very little that you can do to make them see it um they will find reasons excuses justifications whether they say oh it's not that bad or I can handle it I've got a high tolerance everyone drinks like this um you know you're just whatever so they might push it back on you and say you're, you know you've always had a problem with me so there isn't one kind of magic uh sentence that will will get through to them I would probably stick with just voicing concern like I'm worried about you I wonder if you're worried about you as well you know always always trying to convey it without judgment because judgment will just shut people down it will make them defensive and really express it in form of your concern. So not as a criticism like, oh, you're drunk again, or did you see what well, I'm not suggesting that's what you did, but you know, not expressing it as a criticism because that will shut that person down and potentially lead them into a kind of defiant drinking binge, like I'll show you. But to express it as a non-judgmental concern, you know, I'm I I've noticed that and I'm concerned that. Um and you know, ask them the question, are are you worried about how much you drink? what's very telling is that often people will say I, I, start, I wonder if I've got a problem with alcohol and what's you know real is that people who don't have a problem with alcohol rarely think that they've got you know they rarely ask themselves the question have I got a problem with alcohol so um if you are out there and you are thinking hmm how do I know if I have a problem with alcohol? The fact that you're asking yourself that question is relevant and probably worth going towards support services, you know, um, and asking them because if support services will say, uh, well, you know, tell me about your drinking. Okay, this is what we think. So yes, I would approach it non-judgmentally, very, very gently. If that person becomes hostile, step back because you probably don't want them to, you know, to really push away from you. And then perhaps try it again a bit later on. And I think sometimes the best that you can hope for is that if you've done it gently and kindly enough, even if they reject you in the beginning, at the point when they are willing to come round, they will remember that you noticed, they will remember that you cared and that you will become a person who's available to them for support. And I think it's the same, slightly an aside, but um, a slight concern of mine is when people are very very underweight from eating disorders and nobody says anything to them because they think oh I don't want to upset them or I don't want to make them self-conscious but actually sometimes what can happen is that if nobody says anything there's no reality check you know and the person carries on thinking well I must I must look I must be fine because no one's raised any concerns so I know it's incredibly difficult with these kinds of issues but at least flagging it once, look, I'm concerned about this, offers a position of a reality check for that person. And it means that as and when they are ready, they know that you're someone who noticed, who cared enough to notice, and who cared enough to say something. 
and, and that's going to be hugely important like I can't tell you how much how important that is for people okay so someone says um, that was me one was never enough um, I went to rehab and then went to smart meetings and now I am alcohol free for three years well done <laughs> that's great it's possible and it's changing it's changing the way you think lots of women seem to increase their levels of drinking when they go through the peri um, and menopause and the numbers are increasing um i agree it's a huge admission to these are different people so um especially if you like drinking even though it's detrimental my friends have gave me books as a hint I knew I did, but I didn't want to stop, right? So there's that conflict between the awareness and the unwillingness. Um, one of the other things that emerges, so we've spoken about alcohol in terms of helping with uh, social anxiety and confidence. And I think that's particularly true for young, young adults. And then there's a risk about whether people end up trapped in it. But I think that one of the key things that I see, and of course it might be, a um a bias sample uh, but is is drinking in response to trauma and the, that was the key thing when i was working in prison that the you know there was a huge uh drug and alcohol use in prisons of course and when you ask people when you started drinking or why do you drink the answer is invariably to stop the thoughts or to stop the feelings and so that's one of the effects of alcohol of course that separation that we said between the, the prefrontal cortex the kind of thinking higher part of the brain and the emotional part of the brain um, and it causes this kind of functional disconnection and you don't have to remember those things anymore or you don't have to think about those things anymore you don't feel guilty anymore you don't really feel very much anymore other than kind of fearless and maybe a bit happy, um, but also a bit not there. Lots of people spoke about just being wanting to get out of their heads. And so I would wonder, and I don't know the stats on this, this would just be kind of, um, what's the word? A kind of speculation. I would wonder how many drink because of some unresolved trauma. Um, or some event that they have felt unable to think about or talk about or feel huge shame around. So that would be one way that people drink in response to trauma. And the other that I've seen is use of alcohol um, as a coping mechanism when other people don't feel safe. And what I mean by that is that sometimes if you've been harmed um, and it might be that you've it's been you know difficult relationships with parents or that you've just felt kind of different from your family or a very serious rejection early on in life something that creates a sense that other people are unsafe or unreliable that risking emotional dependence becomes very very risky that you don't want to do it people let you down if you open yourself up people can leave or they can hurt you they can change their mind they can cheat on you they can you know all sorts of things there are all sorts of ways in which other human beings are risky dangerous unreliable sources of love support care connection and 
for some people, what that does is create a kind of defense against intimacy. I, I don't want to be close to people. I don't want to depend on people. I don't want to rely on anyone. I don't want to need anyone but myself. You know, I'll do it myself. I'll take care of myself. I'll be so strong, in fact, that I'll take care of all of you, but I'll never need to depend on anyone. And I often see alcohol use associated with this kind of constellation of um, personality traits and experiences. Uh, and, and that's because essentially alcohol becomes a, a crutch and it is a coping mechanism. If it takes away the bad feelings, if it takes away the fear, the anxiety, the guilt, then it is a coping mechanism, not a healthy one, but a coping mechanism. But it's one that you can control. And so what I've seen is people just have, but you know, people with hordes of alcohol, just so that they know that if anything happens, they, they'll be okay. They won't, you know, they won't need to ask anybody for help. They'll, they'll just have a few drinks, you know, forget about it or just push through. And so there's a way in which the relationship for alcohol is substituted for relationships or intimacy, like real deep connected relationships with other people um let's go back to your questions oh this is gonna make me cry um a good friend refused to see me until i got help and that i mean that must have been so difficult for both of you she stuck by me once i got to aa and um, i recognized how hard it was for her to say anything <sighs> so it makes a difference um um Gosh, you guys, honestly, um, eventually I got rock bottom and learning CBT self-management and recovery tools helped me with urges and triggers. Um, okay, so someone saying yes, a bottle of wine a night to help me sleep after an attack. So this is what I'm saying. Um, I'm so sorry. Uh, yes, you're totally right about it being a coping mechanism, living and working abroad and being alone. This is so helpful. Um, Yes, I need to read more Gabba Mate. Um, is there a genetic component to excess uh, drinking or is it growing up in an environment where it's normalised? Um, in the book, he suggests a bit of both, that there might be um, a tendency, and it depends on which way it goes, that some people can drink more without feeling the effects, so they're, they're more likely to end up as heavy drinkers. And he says to be particularly careful if you're the kind of person who feels high after they drink or very low after they drink because what that will tend to do is to compel the person to keep drinking either for the high or to avoid the low of the withdrawal from the alcohol so that there's the potential for a, a a genetic vulnerability but then it will always be it's always about the interaction between the intrinsic and the external so a genetic vulnerability is nothing without the right environmental triggers to switch it on so you know if you grow up it might go either way perhaps you don't have that genetic vulnerability um, or tendency but you grow up in a house full of drinkers um or in a culture that's uh, that's the, where there's lots of heavy drinking you'll go you you know the odds are going to be switched on because in in big ways we imitate behaviors that we see irrespective of um, our genetic um, tendencies. Um, okay. Ooh, sorry, I keep pressing the wrong button. Um, 
yes genetic component parcel from men to sons oh thank you um 18 to 25 percent genetic overlay science hasn't yet found this in women which is interesting isn't it about how so much of um science is weighted towards um male participants um and what that says and what that means for women um there are changes to that now but still so much of recruitment for you know pharmaceutical intervention studies but also psychological intervention studies use uh young white men as a baseline um and so we we potentially of course miss huge risks for women um all the outcomes for women of these interventions okay so what else do i want to say i think that was lots of it um oh just to give you guys a heads up about you know we talk about alcohol being a depressive uh, depressant um, and really what that means uh and, and really what happens is that alcohol disrupts the serotonin system and serotonin is our our good mood hormone and and that, that disruption can persist if the drinking is heavy and long enough. And so really, really drinking needs to be assessed for much more readily, right? It needs to be something that you're, even when you're going to the GP, if someone's going to the GP and saying, hey, I'm depressed, we should, I mean, I think we should be doing very comprehensive assessments. I know that's not feasible for most people, but the things we absolutely should be thinking about are, you know, how are you sleeping? What are you eating ideally? But also what are you drinking? You know, that we know that these things have profound effects. You know, what's going on for you? That I think it's a huge disservice to just say, are you depressed or not? Because what that doesn't tell us is what's contributing to that person's depression, what's created it, what's keeping it going, what's perpetuating the state that this person's found themselves in. Um, and unless you do that, you're very unlikely to be able to give them the right support, the right treatment, the right intervention. Um, and, and the risk is with things like depression and, and psychological concerns, People can lose hope if the first treatment doesn't work, right? Um, so if I if I just say, oh, you're depressed, let's try this, and it doesn't work, then sometimes people can go away with the feeling that, oh, I'm so broken that even the treatments don't work for me. And and I think that's really frightening. Um, and I think it's very unfair. Um, and I understand that there are limits on, on what services can offer, but I think we do need a, a much... a much bigger investment and a much, serious, more, much more serious attitude towards mental health, how we assess it, how we address it, how we treat it. Um, and, and of course, my soapbox, um, how we attempt to prevent it, because I don't think we attempt to prevent it enough. So yeah, so I'm just gonna step off my soapbox for a minute. Oh, that was a set. A quarter of young alcoholics have um, social anxiety. So there's 25% of all the people who under the age of 25 um, are alcoholic have an anxiety disorder so there's this huge overlap and what we should be doing if we know those stats is supporting well 
creating a society where people are allowed to be quiet or introverted and um, it not be stigmatizing, um, you know, that people can just be a bit of an introvert and be welcomed for that. It's very odd how the entirety of society is set up for extroverts as if introverts are wrong or uh, need to be fixed, but leaves people who are perfectly fine feeling inadequate, feeling as if they're not right for the world um, and that they have to change themselves in some way to the point where they feel like they have to drink more than perhaps they would like or at all in order to fit in. Um, I think that's hugely unfair. Would drinking alcohol only become a problem if you were using it to cover an emotional problem? Um, no. Um, I think it's a problem... I think it's a problem if it's a problem, right? If it, psychologically, we always think of something being a problem if it if it impairs your, your functioning, your daily living. I think if you're using something as a crutch for your emotional needs, then it's a problem. If you're using something in such a way that it interferes with your relationships, then, then it's a problem. If you're using something to such a degree that it hurts your health, then it's a problem. I think this is, this is what he says kind of says in the book he says look there are here are these physical risks that there is no safe level of alcohol that every glass of alcohol is associated with at least a percentage risk of harm to yourself and but you need but there are you know people do get benefits to people do feel good our society does use it as uh, to socialize there are you know other you know it is part of celebrations like weddings and and so forth so you may have to take a very good and you know he makes you do a kind of thorough assessment of yourself to really make a judgment for yourself and you know give yourself informed consent for how much you're going to drink for the benefits that you want it to give you for some people that will be zero because there isn't a safe level for them to drink for some people it might be within those um the the nhs guidelines for for alcohol limits so you know 14 units or so um but that you really need to understand the full lay of the land before you can make that judgment for yourself um what's the book title again please it is called drink with a question mark the, the new science of alcohol and your health by professor david nutt um use the word alcoholic do you think alcohol abuse disorder sounds better i refer to myself as having been alcohol dependent for a period now i'm fine three years sober um I think I think that's a good point. Um, I think it depends, often depends on um, your training and where you work. I think, for example, AA tends to use the word alcoholic because it's it's considered kind of taking responsibility. But again, I, I think people are welcome to kind of self-label, to self-name as they please. So I guess I'm, I'm taking the lead from the clients I've worked with who have been in AA, who have kind of worked towards using the term alcoholic as a, as a description. But I, I take your point, you know, that some people might find it quite difficult. Um, and, you know, alcohol abuse disorder medicalizes it and, and says, you know, you have an illness and that for some people that makes it easier to tolerate. Okay, so I use that as so someone else says so I use alcoholic for myself as shorthand, but don't call others um, use it. Okay. 
Yes, oh, we are rapidly running out of time. Um, I think that was probably all I had to say on it. Um, thank you for what's been a really open and generous book club. Uh, I'm, I've been really touched by so many of the things that you've said. Uh, I, I wasn't sure how this book would go down. Um, I didn't know whether I would be, be called a prude or that I would be the person kind of pointing fingers and saying, mm-hmm, you need to think about your drinking. Um, I kind of am being that person, but hopefully gently and kindly and compassionately. And um, that really it's about creating a more open and honest conversation for us to talk about these things. You know, it's obviously happening. There are AA groups everywhere. They are constantly in use. And, and that's because people are struggling with this, but people are struggling with it secretly. And perhaps it's something that we need to think about more honestly, more openly and more compassionately. So thank you for joining me. I will be back tomorrow with next month's book. Um, it's an old one, so you should be able to get lots of library copies, um, but it is one of my favourites. Uh, so um, I hope you will join me for next week's book club. Stay healthy, look after yourselves, be kind to each other, and I will see you next time. Right, thanks, guys. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.